Kevin Kautzman. Welcome to the Forest of Symbols. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So um, I have a confession. Um, so I'll just get this out of the way uh, at the beginning. When I was younger, like in my teens and 20s, um, and of course, I no longer think this, but I was a lot more arrogant back then, in my opinions. And now I know that I know nothing. But uh, I, I used to believe that uh, TV and film basically made theater obsolete. And I didn't understand uh, why people did theater. <laughs> yes. Uh, no. All right. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I went to, we have a Shakespeare festival in Cedar city, Utah. I went to it for years and that really like, I, I really got into that. So, um, but anyway, yeah, I, I <laughs> tell, tell the younger me why I was so wrong to think. I, well, first I was going to say many, su- many such cases, right? Mm-hmm. I, I hear that from people uh, who I consider to be very good friends. I go, why are you writing another play? Why don't you take the play you wrote adapted into a screenplay and actually get an audience. And I go, well, (laughs) maybe, maybe it's a yes and thing. I don't know. Um, Yeah. Theater, theater is fantastic. And uh, for me, it's a, it's a real passion. I'm a playwright. Right. And uh, written plays I've had plays on uh, in, you know, London, Dallas, New York, Detroit, uh, Minnesota here. And um, I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to sound too sentimental, uh, Maybe the best case I can give on this podcast for it is that if you look at the history of what we call Western civilization, hitherto Western civilization, it is inextricably woven in with the theater. Uh, if you know Harold Bloom, uh, the the great Shakespeare scholar at Yale who has passed, um, he very famously said that Shakespeare invented the human. Uh, right. And... It really isn't that much of a stretch to say that the way that we understand the individual in the West is bound up with with the ang- uh, anglophonic, you know, the Shakespearean um, theatrical tradition. So if you if you want to come at it as a real sued, right, <laughs> like, and you really want to come at it from an intellectual standpoint, um, understanding our our society our civilization um such as it is anymore uh is is i think almost impossible without um thinking about theater theatricality performance and live performance as um a central plank of that uh and then of course it's just it's fun and when theater when theater is terrible it's the worst thing in the world right you're trapped in your seat you're watching these people try to play make believe and it's not working it's it's the very worst thing in the world it's it's cringe max cringe but when theater is 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 amazing it really is inseparable from i suppose what you would call sort of ceremonial magic or um it really magic with a k it really has this incredibly impactful um ability to to change people and sort of change the world it's also just good fun um boy i could go on about it but you know and i'm i'm a real fan of i'm not a musical theater guy i love a really well-made musical right um i can appreciate les miserables i appreciate the book of mormon i mean the book of mormon's great uh i i can dig it maybe one day we might even do killdozer the musical and 
kind of <laughs> thought about doing that. How fun would that be? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Marv Hemeyer and uh, doing a, a number in his hot tub. Well, well, God tells him to, uh, to build the killdozer. I mean, fantastic, but um, I'm really a, a straight theater guy by which I mean, you know, sort of straight plays, no music, nobody, nobody breaks into song. That's really my, my bread and butter. And um, I, I just think it's great. And uh, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, he, he, you know, hesitating or you haven't thought about going back into the theater, look, it's, it's also become like a bit of a revolutionary act here. If you can go to a theater, no vaccine passport, no mask and go see people do something live I mean, this is this is like now kind of rare. I mean, we've gone two years without it. So th- there you go. That's my that's, that's my little introduction. Yeah, my pitch. Yeah. 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 Um, so like I mentioned, I, I was I guess it probably was the Shakespeare Festival that kind of converted me. They, you know, it's in a, a very well produced uh, festival and they have a replica of the Globe Theater. So it's an outdoor. Oh, great. Uh, theater i don't know if it's an exact replica but it's like it's pretty similar to what the original one would have been like and so um i went to see king lear and they had it like it was a storm it was like in the middle of a storm which is so perfect for that play and i was like Mm -hmm. this is amazing because it was like this random thing that happened they couldn't have planned for that i mean they scheduled it way in advance you know there was going to be a storm during the play that has like a famous storm scene in it and i was like wow you couldn't you know it's just a serendipity so it was was such an atmosphere I love that. I love those sort of John Cage accidental notes. You're kind of, oh, well, that works. We we did a play years ago uh, uh, in London. Did you know that Camus wrote uh, a play called Caligula? Many people don't don't know this. And this was sort of in the context of the Iraq war and sort of sort of a play about power and megalomania and uh, and Caligula being this crazy, you know, people would ask us, oh, are you going to get your kid off? Right. Are you going to are you going to get naked? Right. Because they associate it with the, the movie. <laughs> and right. no, we didn't we didn't get naked. Um but uh, we did Caligula at this little theater called the Union Theater. It's since moved across the, across the street. This is in Southwark, um, on uh, in London, very pretty central. And but it was this very tiny theater, and it was underneath because they use every nook and cranny in that town. Uh, it was underneath some train tracks, and so there would be certain nights where uh, Caligula would be giving this great speech this this sort of very intense speech uh and the train would run overhead and and <laughs> after the show the audience would sometimes go well what was you know did you time that was that some people didn't even realize it was a train they were like oh we right. love the effect you know just fun stuff like that i love it and you're not gonna get that out of netflix you're not gonna get that out of uh streaming and um you know, look, the other thing is, you know, if we're if we're on the side of things now that um, feels uh, censored or or censorship is sort of operating through techno capital. Right. You're if you can't get the money together to make a movie and, to, you know, and to, and to distribute a movie. You sure as as heck can can get some friends together and do some really poor theater locally. And you never know what kind of impact that's going to have. So there you go. Another case for theater. Yeah, low overhead. That's definitely an advantage. Um, yeah, in the case of that play with the train, literally, there was like a train <laughs> running over us. Yeah, yeah, a little 
you know, it is, it is a lot less common. I mean, it, it, it always was, as far as I can remember, less common for people to go into theater. They, you know, people wanted to do TV or film or be a rock star or whatever. Now it's like, maybe kids growing up don't even want that so much as something more immediate like YouTube or TikTok yeah. or something. But, uh, well, I mean, you know, in my, my case here is, you know, like what they're doing on TikTok is it's a, it's a form of theater. It's mm-hmm. we're, we're almost going back to like a kind of a vaudevillian Nickelodeon type, uh, scene there. Right. You know, you put your five cents in and you see the, the girl dancing maybe she, she slips a nip. Right. I mean, we're, yeah. we're not that far. It's the same thing. It's just a different, it's mediated a different way. Um, so even if you're interested in that type of stuff, like, boy, I mean, just, uh, you know, yeah, go in, go in, do like a community theater class, do an acting class. You're going to, you're going to learn a lot. If you're like an introverted, um, I mean, not introverted, but like, like a shy or kind of a, an anxious person, boy, I mean, don't go do Toastmasters, you know, lame, you know, go do a play. <laughs> You'll get over yourself pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So what, what first, how far back does the theater bug go for you? And how did that happen? I mean, I was, a, I was a super awkward kid and, uh, but I did do some like backstage stuff in high school. So I was sort of around it, but not in it. Um, and then, uh, after university here, uh, in Minnesota, I sort of, um, looked back and I thought, yeah, I really had wanted to do that. So I started, uh, in a community um, theater acting class, I just sort of in North Minneapolis, which uh, is is a, a story of its own right now. Um, and so that goes back; it must be like two thousand and three, almost twenty years. Um, I I was dabbling at prose, writing prose, but I was sort of bored and lonely by it. Uh, I was being made lonely by it. Sort of like, oh, this is just like, I admire people who can write novels, but at a certain point I just get stir crazy. And so I kind of put two and two together because what I was writing, I realized uh, I enjoyed writing the dialogue the most. And I'm like, hmm, I'd rather be around people and I like writing dialogue. <laughs> where, yeah. where do I belong? You know? And so I, I started writing plays and um, there, there are an awful lot of, um, like 10 minute play festivals and contests and things. And the 10 minute play is sort of the equivalent of like a short story uh, or flash fiction. If you're a prose um, writer where the, the traditional uh, route to your first novel, right. Is to write short stories. Um, maybe that's changed now, but that's sort of typically how it's done. Right. You, you begin to write short stories, you begin to publish short stories. Then they say, Hey, you can't make a living writing short stories. So, Hey, write a novel. Well, for playwrights, you can today, you can sit down and write a 10 minute play uh, and begin to apply to all of these various festivals and opportunities and things. And you might be surprised. You might hear back from somebody and and they go, Hey, we want to do your 10 minute play. Well, that happened to me. So I kind of caught that bug. And then I realized, well, why do I think that I'm going to write for the theater if I'm not in the theater? Uh, I think it's almost like thinking you're going to like um, compose an opera or or some great work for the, you know, for the orchestra uh, without knowing how to play an instrument like a piano. So I think as a as a young playwright, I think I made the right decision <clears throat> by going in and, and taking some acting classes and things. And um, yeah, so it's, it goes back about 20 years for me. Um, yeah, you did some acting I also, after yep. you had been writing plays already. Yeah, right. So I started writing short plays. Uh, can't even remember when I first wrote my. Yeah, it was all sort of in two thousand three, two thousand four. I was dabbling in ten minute plays, and then I, I realized like I've I've got to go into the theater and um, 
And so I did, I joined this little community theater in, in Minneapolis. I did a, um, um, the good doctor, uh, Neil Simon play. I played the lead in that. Um, I'm sure I was terrible, uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, it was, it was probably I, helpful to get that perspective uh, of an actor for the writing as well. 100%. I mean, if, if the first people you have to win over really win over for your writing are actors. And if actors, if actors look at the script and go, Ooh, I'd like to do this. You're that's 90% of the, of the game. And if you're, you know, what's sort of fun to play, you can write toward that a little more, not to say that it's necessarily about being fun for the actors. Like we just did an episode of um, art of darkness, which is the podcast I do with Brad Kelly, art of And I know Brad was a guest on your show here too. Yep. I listened to that. That was cool. Um, we just did an episode on Sarah Kane, uh, who is this incredibly um, powerful, dark, intense, um, important English playwright. Are her plays fun to do? <laughs> like, this isn't like a song and dance type thing. These are intense excavations of like the very darkest sides of, of humanity. But yeah, I suppose then they are fun for a certain type of actor. Anyway, yeah, it's good. It's good to act if you're going to write for the theater. Yeah, that was a cool episode because I never um, had heard of Sarah Kane and it's like her plays have rape and cannibalism and like all the all the most horrible things you could think of. And I, I think a lot of people probably don't realize that uh, that kind of thing can happen on that 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 occurs on stage. Yeah, the people are rightly reasonably in America Philistines about the theater. It's reasonable. It's not the first thing we think about. I mean, when I went over to England, uh, you know, to, to sort of study theater and do a little bit of theater, I had a job that allowed me to go there. I was there for a year. Um, they noticed and they pointed out to me too, like you America, you think in film, you think in television, all your cultural references, all your, and they were totally right because I'm a kind of a bit of a, you know, I'm a redneck and a turtleneck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> from North, North, I'm literally in a turtle, turtleneck right now, um, in, in North Dakota or from North Dakota, you know, and they're right. I, what, what did I have access to? I mean, I did have access to theater. There was an awful lot of theater where I grew up, but it's not, um, quite the same as, as going to the theater where, you know, uh, waiting for Godot premiered in, you know, uh, or look back in anger premiered. It's a different tradition. And there are people over there who that's their primary frame in terms of storytelling. Whereas for Americans, it tends to be television and film. We're also very good at television and film. Uh, I mean, I, I really do think posterity will look back at the past 30 years of television and go this, I'm, this is not original, but it really is a golden age for the medium and, uh, you know, real fine art happening in in um in television especially um what are so, your yeah. favorites from uh from that period uh I, you know i'm gonna sound like a like a, a bit of a cliche right but my gosh I, twin peaks i mean you can go back and watch twin peaks it's incredible sure. um we we don't we don't get uh i think x files without twin peaks um you know, it's just amazing. The third season's incredible. The obvious ones, uh, Sopranos, The Wire, all the sort of uh, almost like cliche prestige television. But it's it's that for a reason. It's amazing. I just rewatched all the Sopranos. It's incredible. The although the movie was um, extraordinarily disappointing. Um, Deadwood, the the Deadwood movie was amazing. They did such a good job with that. Um, Deadwood so yeah, what, is probably my my favorite all time in terms of dramas. I just mm. can't get over the language of that show. I don't think there's been anything <laughs> quite like the, 
you know, explosive profanity plus the, you know, poetic profundity of, of the dialogue of that show. You know, what's amazing though, that's how people talk in, in North Dakota, maybe, <laughs> maybe a little less, uh, profundity, <laughs> but, uh, but the, the profanity, I mean, that was my, that's a hundred percent my childhood. I mean, we, I came out here, uh, to Minnesota and there's a tendency to lump this whole part of the country together. North Dakota is nothing like Minnesota. Minnesota is nothing like South Dakota. There, there's a huge cultural divide. Minnesota is its own animal. And, um, uh, but nobody will sort of tell you that, right? You've got to figure it out when you're young, uh, et cetera. And I remember there was one night we were, we were sort of partying and, you know, maybe had a few, had a few drinks. Uh, this is maybe right after college. And I was talking with some people and some guy just said, you know, you, you realize you swear a lot. <laughs> Like, oh, oh man, that's how we talk. Anyway, so yeah, no, Deadwood's tremendous. And the, and what I just watched the movie, it was so satisfying. Um, that movie did kind of everything that you would hope for, uh, which the series maybe didn't do because the series kind of ended where maybe it looked like they were going to come back for another season. Um, right. and then it didn't. Yeah. And, and whereas the, whatever they did with the Godfather, I mean, the, or the Godfather, um, the Sopranos rather, um, just, uh, Really, really disappointing. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, what were your early 10 minute plays about? Did you know what you wanted to write about right away or kind of like figure <laughs> the that one, out? The one 10 minute play that I remember writing was about a, uh, a sniper. I had no business writing about this, but I, I was interested in, I have no military background whatsoever, uh, but I was interested in, in the, Afghan, Afghan and, and Iraq wars. And I had read something, I was reading something in the newspaper about this, you know, this sniper who um, somehow ended up having like a, like a family in his crosshairs, who's trying to shoot somebody. Um, I think this was a little early for the drone business, but yeah, it was about that. I don't even really remember um, that play. Uh, but, but that one, I sent it around and uh, it did get some response. It was like, oh, you know, you're a, oh, you're a finalist in this. And I was like, oh, well, I'm a finalist. Hey, <laughs> you know, you, you're, you're young and you're sort of naive. You go, well, that's interesting. I sent something out into the world. Somebody read it. And, and there's maybe there's an opportunity here to, you know, to like express myself in a, in a more immediate way. That's the thing about theater is that it, it, there's an immediacy to it. Like one of my plays I sent to, um, a company out in New York. This was when I this is you know flash forward five or seven years from that ten minute play, and I sent it to this company in New York that had made a call for scripts through the Playwright Center here uh, in Minneapolis, which is an animal all its own. We can talk about, but the Playwright Center um, uh, has been pretty instrumental in the careers of some some um, pretty major playwrights, including August Wilson. August Wilson spent some time in St. Paul here, uh, but. I sent a play to these, this company out in New York. This is the play. If you start a fire, be prepared to burn about, it's actually about internet sex work, which I wrote a decade ago. It was maybe a little too early. I wrote that play. Um, they, the next day, the guy wrote me back and said, we want to produce your play in New York. <laughs> nice. You know? And so, I mean, wow, you can't, whoa, what's better than that? I mean, and again, I was, I was young and naive and, and theater does tend to be a young person's, um, game. And uh, so there was this period where it was like, oh, we'll do a production here. And you begin to think in your mind, like, well, this is how it's always going to be. But of course, it's not the case, right? So when you, if you're a young playwright and you're getting some some um, opportunities and things, really try to savor them because uh, it doesn't always last, you know. 
Um, but anyway, that was a fantastic experience. I had a great time. I'm still friends with very good friends with um, the actor who who uh, played the lead in that Lenny Platt. We're buddies. We worked on a series together. We actually adapted um, if you start a fire into like a TV concept. And then we finally made a, a bunch of web shorts about it. Um, and that's at moneyshotshow.com. Uh, and these are sort of like funny little uh, sketches of people doing it's like it's like if um, only fans, but it was fun. It was made funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had fun making those. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, it sounds like you've been kind of interested in uh, depicting online phenomena for for a while. So that brings us to moderation, which is the play that I uh, was able to listen to because you have it available on Spotify as uh I guess it's a read through and they, you have someone, you know, uh, reading the uh, stage directions because uh, you weren't, this is because of, uh, was this during like COVID lockdown? Is that why you decided to do it this way? Yeah, I can give you the background of this. So uh, moderation is a play about social media content moderators losing their minds at work. Uh, It's another play that's sort of pulled from, the headlines, right? If you if you go online and you look up Facebook content moder- moderators sue Facebook, you're going to find all sorts of crazy stories. The Verge did a story about these these poor content moderators who are literally sort of going going crazy uh, because of the jobs that they have to do, seeing the very worst that humanity puts online and all the rest of it. I had I had wanted to write this play for years. The thing that finally. Um, spurred me to do it was when (laughs) I read a story. It might've been that Verge story. I can't remember, but the story um, (laughs) was about how some of these moderators had come to believe the conspiracy theories that they were moderating. (laughs) Right. I just thought how wonderful that's so, and of course this is like NPR is like, Oh, you see conspiracy theories. Well, I'm, I'm an OG. I really am interested in conspiracy theories, both as um, hints towards sort of what, uh, an alternate way of seeing the world, which is very valuable when you live sort of live in clown world like we do, right? The media lies constantly. So if nothing else, the conspiracies are, are an invitation to question authority. Um, but beyond that, I sort of tend to think of these conspiracy theories as like our modern folk tales. There are campfire stories that are just happening around phones and, and um, HP laptops and Apple laptops. Um, but so with moderation, uh, what you're hearing if you go on Spotify or if you go to moderationplay.com uh, and listen to the podcast we made is uh, a reading that was done during COVID times by a theater company in Washington, D.C. called Spooky Action. It's uh, named after like a um, um, like a quantum physics term, spooky action. Um, they did a reading of moderation. It was the first public reading. Some really great talent was in that, including my friend Amanda. Um, and she's since moved back to Minnesota. So we're going to start a theater company here, but I'll get to that later. Um, so this is funny. So they did this reading. Uh, and then my friend, uh, Jeff Giese, who um, is a very interesting guy, a very political guy. Uh, he was sort of involved in that whole deplorable thing. Um, he's, he's, his politics are sort of, well, it's neither here nor there. But he he found me on Twitter and he said, hey, Kevin, I want to do something artistic. You know, do you, you know, if you need money for artistic stuff, reach out to me. Well, as an artist, (laughs) you know, you go, Oh, who's this guy? Like, all right. Okay, cool. So he, he and I got together and we sort of said like, what's the lowest hanging fruit here? What can we do with moderation to kind of get it out there fast? um, Try to get it to as many people as possible. Well, we thought, why don't we take this reading that spooky action did, which was great. And, 
clean it up, hire a company to sort of do some additional production, some additional sound effects, throw in some music. And that's what you're hearing with the the moderation um, podcast. Yeah. Well, I think it works really well. Uh, and, you know, you may not have intended to do it in that format, but uh, would you ever like intentionally create something like that? Because, I mean, there is a tradition of like before TV became like a primary medium, uh, radio theater was like a big thing for a while. Yeah, it's interesting. They they do that in the UK. One of the things that happens if a playwright has some success is they'll almost, without a doubt, get like a commission from the BBC or from some group over there to write a radio play. It's a big radio play contest. There's really a tradition of it. Like I think even I think Pinter wrote a radio play. It was funny. I was I, this morning. I was just sort of waking up and having my coffee, and I thought be an interesting thing to write a play about podcasters as a podcast so yeah maybe maybe one day i you know i i don't know um right. i want to yeah it would be funny if it was done well it could really be a phenomenon um you know i mean you think about uh, war of the worlds and everything right like how amazing would it be to and people have done this um yeah i'm not writing it off i'm we're, we're looking for sort of any way to reach audiences, but also in a way that's authentic and, do and doesn't feel forced. Um, while we're on moderation, I should say, uh, if you go to moderationplay.com, there's going to be another Zoom reading of moderation, and, um, but it's going to be a little bit different. I'm working with, with a theater company in LA uh, called The Blank, and they do something called The Living Room Series. Uh, and this year it's gonna be on Zoom, so we're not gonna be in anybody's living room um, in LA, will be in your living room, I suppose, if you if you stream it. But I'm working with my my good friend and um, screenwriting partner Abby Lucas. She's going to be directing uh, this Zoom uh, presentation of moderation, and it's not just going to be audio. We're going to try to do something that's a little more stylized. There's going to be some some video. Um, so anyway, that's coming up. That's going to be out in December, uh, December sixth. So yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It'd be interesting to see. Um, how, how it is in that format, you know, it's, this might be a little bit weird, but it kind of feels like, um, it's not, the setting is not technically like a completely enclosed cause this is just a part of their, it's not like a continuous thing. So it's like during their breaks at work, right. Yeah. When they're talking to each other and you have a male and female character and it's pretty much just those two characters. Um, but because of the environment, it almost feels like one of those, um, like submarine movies where you've got like the two people that need to turn their keys and they're at odds, you know, mm. and they're like losing their minds because they're deep underwater, you know, and they have to be with yeah. each other or something like that. Yeah. And absolutely. also in a, like in a submarine, mm. you don't know what's going for real, what's going on in the outside world. And that kind of happens to these people where they start to doubt what's real and what is. Yeah. And this is what I love about theater so well is that you can take a, with one actor, you can create an entire world. With two actors, you can you can do so many things, and uh, it is always an invitation to. Uh, this is maybe going to sound corny, but it is an invitation to wonder. And uh, adults in our highly repressed uh, society need to make room for play. Uh, we really, really do. And it's, it's essential to our humanity and in re in the real world, IRL. So there is nothing like getting in a room with people, um, and all agreeing, Hey, we're going to, we're going to make believe for a minute. 
Uh, just that act alone is sort of revolutionary now, especially as they try to suck us deeper and deeper and deeper into these you know, these screens. Um, the first play I saw coming back uh, here recently was at the Old Log Theater in uh, Excelsior, Minnesota. So way on the other side of the Twin Cities out by um, um, Lake Minnetonka. You have to purify yourself in the, in the waters of Lake Minnetonka. Um, but uh, it, it was the play that goes wrong. And it's a comedy. It was actually somebody from the Bird website reached out, um, some anon from the Bird website, and he's he happens to be a bartender out there or something like this. And he says, hey, you know, come out to the show, blah, blah, blah. And um, so and it's not the type of play I would normally go to, right? It's kind of a wacky comedy. Oh, my God, it was amazing. It was so much fun. It's just it's this play that falls apart as they're doing the play. So it's the stage. The stage manager is on stage. People are switching roles. It's just this perfectly crafted sort of slapstick, a lot of physical comedy. The whole set falls apart. And I don't think I've had more fun in months, you know, uh, it's just, it's just a really good time. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. Uh, I mean, like I, I, you know, I mentioned that, you know, there's paranoia and stuff, but you do have a lot of comedy in uh, moderation as well. Yeah. I think without comedy, that play would be unbe unbearable. Uh, right. And uh, yes, the internet has been sort of my one of my areas of interest in the theater, I'm a little maybe more heterodox than I should be just in, in life in general. Like I do so many different things um, and it comes across in my, in my writing and in my theater too. So I maybe can't be pinned down. I don't just want to write five plays about the internet and different, different sort of um, effects of the internet, but like in terms of my career, that maybe, maybe would have been a better move. <laughs> because <laughs> it's just sort of like oh this is the this is the playwright who writes about the internet so yeah anyway well um, even minus the internet aspect of it uh i think it does a good job of portraying elements of just the work experience that is not specific to like content moderators but you know you've got like the person with their first day of work and they're yeah. trying to figure out what's going on and the the manager the, the guy who's her, the manager you know, it, it, it does capture this tension that you always have between relating to employees as, you know, a real person, quote unquote, and also being this representative of, of the company's interests. I'm glad that you caught that. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a trust fund kid. Like I've worked, I've worked all my life more or less. Um, and yeah, I was definitely drawing on some, some real world, uh, scuzzy corporate, um, gross power dynamic experiences that I've had over the years to, to craft that kind of experience, right? Anybody who's worked a job, um, <laughs> uh, you know, will will understand it, but it's like, you throw in all of that, um, what you just described, throw that all in. But then after the break is over, they have to go and moderate snuff films from, from Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. I mean, you know, it just sort of writes itself, doesn't it? What I realized later after writing the play um, is that it, I don't know if you know the play, um, the dumbwaiter from Pinter, but this, this play is essentially the dumbwaiter. Uh, and that's what will often happen um, when you're writing a play. You'll, that, that that's, that's good. Um, uh, you know, where, where people actually sort of seem to want to do it. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll realize after the fact, oh, this is like that. There, there, there are too many wildly original things happening fundamentally in terms of storytelling. Um, it's, it's kind of spooky. Yeah. So I, I jotted down just a few of the uh, topics and themes that, that come up in here. And uh, 
So I've got a little list, uh, censorship and free speech, surveillance, mimetic contagion, corporate <laughs> control of information, conspiracy theories and paranoia, as we mentioned, info hazards, office politics, sexual harassment, trauma, <laughs> I'm, others, I'm sure. What am I missing? The AI. Anxiety. Yeah, AI too. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's good. You really paid attention. I appreciate that. That's, that's cool. That, there's a lot in there. And it's not an extremely long play, you know? Yeah, that's the other thing that theater does really well uh, somehow. I don't quite know how it does it, but um, it reminds me of what is it? Was it Miles Davis who talked about, you know, it's the notes you're not playing. I think theater and drama do, does really, really well at letting subtext uh, lift. Um and letting visual metaphor um, lift uh, a play, it, you know, plays or play scripts are, are their blueprints, right? You're not. I mean, if you read one of my scripts, which you can buy at Broadway Play Publishing, there are two you can get. Um, hopefully, more soon. Um, uh, and you can go to my website too. It's just my name. Uh, if you read my scripts, I I do not give very many stage directions. Uh, this is a, a school of playwriting that says, don't tell actors what, how to say a line. Don't give stage directions, um, unless they're absolutely necessary. Keep it really, really spare. Uh, and the idea of course, is that you're trying to make a blueprint so that 30 years from now, a company in Germany, I mean, we talk about Sarah Kane, right? She's performed internationally all the time, a company in Germany, a company in Japan and a company in Detroit can do your play and they're like three entirely different um, experiences. That's what you're trying to do. Right. Um, I love that about the theater. Uh, it, it's really powerful. Yeah. And you're right. It's like what, it's like a, it's probably like an 80 page script and it has all those themes kind of packed into it. But I think I would like to think, and maybe you tell me there's enough air in it that you, you bring where you're at to the play and fill the play up with meaning based on where you're at. That's the, that's what I'm always trying to do. Yeah, sure. I think that's true. And that's probably why I, you know, highlighted the work aspect of it because that's definitely, uh, it's true to my experience. So, um, but you mentioned AI and, you know, earlier we're talking about how theater is like essential to, uh, what it is to be human. Yeah. Um, you know, most people will probably trace the, uh, our ideas of that back to, ancient Greece and yep. you know, what was Athens notable for? And that was, that, that was its, its theater. Yep. And we're now going through this time where it, it feels as though humans are being, we have this feeling that humans are, are being replaced. And when you're online, you go through all these things of like having to prove that you're not a bot thinking that maybe, you know, some anonymous presence online might not be a real person or might be a couple few people <laughs> right yeah, right so it's like right. at this time like what did it what it is to be a real person is uh, speaks to our moment yeah it does it does you think about uh yeah you can think about eyes wide shut <laughs> and that the the famous sequence with all the masks and everything and it's if, if you think the way that I do it, that that's really not that far removed from the experience of going online as a face cuck. Uh, you know, you go online, your face is, is being shown 
and you're in this party with a bunch of anons. It's and everybody's wearing their different masks. Um, Not saying that's what Kubrick was driving at, but the other one that that we've been talking about online on the Bird website, where I'm very active um, recently, is Lost Highway as a potential Lynchian uh, metaphor for going online. This is a very interesting sort of idea. I can't remember what account I'm I'm interacting with about this, but if you think about David Lynch's work, he's kind of always in conversation with whatever medium he's he, he's using, um, and uh, so there's the idea that sort of Twin Peaks is potentially one reading of Twin Peaks is Twin Peaks is um, about the effect of television on American culture uh, through a television show itself, right? It has, um, invitation to love is in the show. It's a soap opera within a soap opera. Twin Peaks is a soap opera, but it's commenting on soap operas, right? Well, there's this idea that Lost Highway could sort of be David Lynch trying to kind of describe, uh, the feeling of like going online and creating an alter ego, uh, as a middle-aged man, (laughs) And all this like porn and kind of violence. And if anybody remembers what it was like to be online in the 90s, um, it's not the farthest, it's not that much of a stretch to say maybe he's making a comment about this. Of course, it's other things too. That's his that's his genius. Um, but yeah, no, you're yeah, right. There's a I, lot I, of yeah. mediation in Lost Highway. Like it yeah. starts out with the videotapes being sent to the home. And you've got the mystery man, you know, he uses his, I mentioned this on, uh, on the bird site as well about how it almost looks forward to the cell phone without like having a grasp of what that technology is yet with mm-hmm. the camcorder and yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. He's, he, I mean, he's one of the greats, of course. Uh, I'm, we are you would be uniquely suited to, uh, kind of comment on media too. Cause he's a very multimedia guy. He does, uh, like mm-hmm. he paints and he makes music and he's done TV and film and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he came out of the art school in Philadelphia. Uh, I went over to Philadelphia to see the, um, there was a presentation of his, um, or an exhibition of his, his early painting. And, uh, or his painting, he still paints, and the the paintings are just horrific and intense. I mean, he's such an interesting character, um, a real American original, and and one of I would say one of my heroes. He's he's brilliant. Um, uh, yeah, Twin Peaks. All right, let's go. Um, yeah, really, really wonderful stuff. So um, to uh, to switch topics just a little bit, uh, why don't you tell me about Killdozer and why that <laughs> plays such a prominent role in the play? <laughs> In in moderation. Well, yeah. what do you know about the killdozer? Uh, just the, just the basics. I know that it was a guy who had uh, you know got to the end of his tether and uh, armored up a uh, bulldozer and yeah yeah a knocked Komatsu. down some buildings. Yeah yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, I believe it's is it June fourth that is Killdozer Day. Yes, it is Killdozer Day. Yeah, Killdozer is this kind of libertarian uh, flag in the, in the, uh, the sand, right on the beach. Like this is our, this is our thing. I'm not saying I'm a libertarian, but the, the sort of anarcho libertarian side of, of the internet really gets behind killdozer day. I may or may not have a killdozer flag in my basement that says <laughs> tread on them. Uh, yeah. The killdozer was made by this fellow named Mark, uh, Marvin Hemeyer. And Marv, uh, is actually a dude from South Dakota who moved to Colorado 
uh, had a giant chip on his shoulder about the local council and the local city. He never felt uh, respected or like he was uh, welcomed into sort of the the power elite of that community, right? So this is a guy who who really had a had a bug in his butt for the local council, and he he battled with them over land usage rights and there was some back and forth and there was a, there was like a, a land deal that went wrong. I can't remember all the details, but Mar- and Marv was this was childless, didn't have um, very much sort of family down there, though he was very popular. He led like a smoke a snowmobile ride. Uh, that was his thing. It was like the weekly snowmobile thing with Marv. So he wasn't this total um, incel loser. Uh, you know, I had friends and, but he just, he kind of like slowly lost his mind uh, after they, they kind of zoned out his, um, his shop. He was a, a welder, a very good welder <laughs> as the killdozer uh, evinces, right? This shows us um, he, he kind of lost his, lost his mind and, and uh, God came to him um, in a hot tub. He was, he had a hot tub and in, in, in uh, on his deck uh, overlooking, you know, the mountains or whatever. And God told him to make the killdozer and 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 to bulldoze the town. <laughs> so he he built a kill built the killdozer. He got a Komatsu, um, uh, like a, a bulldozer. Like I think it's a Japanese bulldozer. Hit it in his in his workshop. Worked on it for I think a year and a half, maybe something a long time. Made an armor plated uh, bulldozer burst out of his shop one day uh, and proceeded to, to demolish like his enemy, his, his, this family nearby that he had this huge grudge with demolished a bunch of their stuff and then proceeded to go into downtown Granby, such as it is this little town in Colorado and bulldozed uh, city hall, <laughs> all these other places. I shouldn't laugh about it, but I think it's just too goofy. It's so American and wild. Um, they were shooting at him. They thought they were going to have to bring in the National Guard. Um, and nobody got hurt. Nobody got killed. One of the treads got stuck in the basement of, I think, is it the library? One of the buildings, one of the, the, the treads got stuck. And Marv Marv put an end to it, you know, put a, put a gun in his mouth. And, um, you know, so Killdozer is an internet sort of, moment every year you'll you'll see killdozer day come up and it's this sort of countercultural holiday where <laughs> where uh misfits and and geeks and artists like me and the libertarians you have a moment you pour one out for marv Hemeyer, who was one man pushed too far had enough um thank goodness nobody else got hurt i don't think his his goal was to hurt anybody else but he just he had enough of these these petty bureaucrats in this little town in Colorado who live to make a guy like that feel like he's never going to sort of fit in or get his way. Uh, He he definitely wasn't in the right with all that petty bureaucratic crap, but I think anybody alive today with any sense of um, justice understands that the current world we inhabit in America and in the West is this like Kafka-esque nightmare. <laughs> and one guy had enough, you know. And it, the the amazing thing is, this stuff doesn't happen more. You think about like medical debt and medical debt getting passed to to um, you know to debt collectors and all the sort of indignities and 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 whatnot that we endure in America. The amazing thing is, this doesn't happen more often. So that's the killdozer. <laughs> yeah, everybody's probably had a killdozer moment in their mind at some point. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and so it's, it's useful in the play because it's this this internet culture thing that isn't too extreme, right? It's not we're not, you know, but it, it it I think it sits well in the play. You can tell I'm also a little bit passionate about it. Like I think it's funny, and I, I do think that a that a movie or a um a, a musical about Killdozer, like a uh, like an industrial metal outlaw country musical, like <laughs> would be would be amazing. But well, I, you know, have, there are any, yeah. Have you heard the band Killdozer? Are you? Um, I uh, no. Is there, is there a good band named Killdozer? Uh, yeah, I mean they're pretty oh. good. I'll, I'll tell you that this is the odd thing because I was like, when I heard about uh, the real life Killdozer, I was like, oh, the band oh, the band Killdozer must have named themselves after after that. But actually, they didn't because this happened in like 2004, right? Yeah, yeah. Something okay, like that. so the yeah. band Killdozer, and they're from like uh, they're from Wisconsin, I think. Yeah, um, and they kind saying. of they they come out in like the like 1984, something like that, and they sort of were one of these bands that came out of like the hardcore scene, but they kind of developed into something that's more like post punk or like kind of early grunge too. a lot they're they're cited as like an early grunge band but they have this like you know kind of dark funny sensibility as well that like really fits with the killdozer vibe Mm -hmm. and like their first album or one of their early albums is called intellectuals are the shoeshine boys of the ruling elite um (laughs) so they've got that kind of like you know that kind of anti-elite punk sensibility as well but they were named they named themselves after a Ted Sturgeon sci-fi story that got turned into a TV movie in the seventies. Yeah. Neither of which I've encountered, but yeah. Yeah. I, I just uh, did a quick search. You're right. I, yeah, I, I, I have to listen to them. I don't know, but I think, uh, uh, yeah, I really do think a killdozer movie would be, or a musical. I keep saying movie, right. Uh, oh my God. It would just be so funny. I was, I was talking with this producer I know over in England and we were sort of starting to bat the idea around uh, a real counterculture a uh, musical for people who you wouldn't think would like musicals, right? I mean, look at look at what um, the Book of Mormon did, right? That's not a, it's an interesting idea, right? It's not sort of what you would typically make into a musical. Anyway, yeah, yeah, I will, yeah, I'll give Killdozer a listen sometime. Yeah, you should. It also, uh, and you also work in uh, actually quotations from Industrial Society and its future in the play too. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> I, I get. Uh, the play, if there's like a crescendo in the play, it's it's with the madness of these characters. And um, I don't want to give too much away for people who don't know the play, moderationplay.com. And uh, but yeah, there's a real crescendo into um, tinfoil land. And uh, well, you know, Uncle Ted was right, of course. I mean, so let's not, you know. Uh, let's not mince words here. Uh, his his methods were maybe you know I I, I disavow the methods. Unsound, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> unsound. Right? Yeah, it's not gonna not gonna end well. I'm I actually am uh, earnestly vehemently opposed to like violence. Like I was I'm a cradle Catholic and you know trying to be a practicing Catholic. I really am. I abhor violence. Um, but his his assessment of our problem uh, it, it was pretty spot on and um, prophetic. Um, yeah. yeah, well, so, you know, and again, this, like you said, it, you bring a lot of your own imagination or your own experience to the play. You could, there's these moments, depending on, you know, what your demeanor is, uh, your attitude about this stuff, it can either be the horror of watching somebody go down the rabbit hole 
or the humor of watching normies encounter, you know, partially ironic extremist memes. <laughs> yeah, I think I talk about the Gashwaffen, <laughs> which nobody can ever pronounce, which is so funny. It's like, you know, study your German, come on. Um, but it's so funny because it, it mixes a, a word that Americans don't typically use um, with German. So you get, I've get heard that pronounced 10 different ways now. Um, yeah, of course. Right. Yeah. They don't, and it's, it's so inside baseball that, and I hate to be this guy, but there'll be moments during the reading um, where I'll be like sniggering like an idiot because you know, it's so funny to me because I'm so online. And these, these four actors who are like normal people with normal, healthy lives, you know, like they don't quite understand the humor, you know, it has, it has a lot to do with like, yeah, yeah. You would get it. You would understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned to me that uh, you have worked as a content moderator. Is that something that's happened since or before? This is the craziest thing, right? And I, I'm a huge fan of um, Grant Morrison's famous lecture on sigil magic. Uh, from, I think it was, is it Disinfo? Is that the name of the conference? Do you know the lecture that I'm talking about? If not, I'll yeah, say I'm, yeah. pr- I'm pretty sure I have, uh, I've watched it, but it's been a long time. Yeah. I'm, I'm such an enormous fan of that, uh, because it, it's just such a summary of, of something that I think we all know, but which is so hard to articulate. Um, and it's also true to my experience of how these, when you sit down to write a piece of, of art, very, very strange things happen. If you kind of invite it in, you'll, you'll start to notice all sorts of weird synchronicities. And what's happened to me with moderation is that, yeah, I have become a moderator in a very, very active uh, crypto chat, which I'm probably going to damage my, my brand irreparably here, but I've already done it on Twitter. It's Floki. It's the new uh, token. It was made in June. It's named after Elon Musk's dog. Uh, it's, it's hovering at a $650 million market, market cap. I've become a crypto bro through this. And I didn't even ask to become a moderator. I just got really active in the chat because I'm like, okay, we got to we gotta pump this up. We got to, this is a good project, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm all in here. Let's go. They just made me a moderator. So I spend way too many hours every day on my phone banning idiots and muting garbage. And we've actually created a very good chat there. I'm kind of proud of the work we've done, as corny as it might sound, because like, we don't allow foul language. We don't allow like too much negativity. Uh, we we really ban FUD very quickly. It's been fun. My But my work as a content moderator there is not, I'm not getting the garbage that the characters in my play are getting. This is just a, it's just a crypto chat. But it is funny that the guy who writes the, writes the play moderation, like the next year or, or a couple of years later is like getting paid to be a moderator in a chat. It's funny how that works. I don't know. I didn't set out to do it either. They just, they just grabbed me and said, you're a moderator now. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So life imitating art then. Well, I, I'm going to write my next play is going to be about a guy who uh, is just oversexed, has too much money. Uh, yep. is look, looking for something to do, you know, that'll yeah, be my next one. Yeah. It'll be, uh, uh, under the volcano, but without the alcoholism. <laughs> um, yeah. So crypto, you know how like, uh, in Seinfeld, George, you know, has this thing where he wants to pretend to be a Marine biologist. It's like, it's yeah. not a real interest that he has, but he likes the idea that he would have this interest. 
That's yeah. kind of like me with crypto and the blockchain. I keep thinking, you know, I should really read up on that. That sounds really interesting if I knew some things about that. But then I just don't do it. So obviously it's not a real interest that I have. <laughs> yeah, you're a, yeah, you're a suit, a crypto suit. Exactly, uh, yeah. Look, there's there's always time. Uh it is it's been amazing. I got into it last year because a buddy of mine told me to buy Doge. I bought Doge, sold Doge too early. Then I was looking around for the next one, bought Shib, sold Shib too late. Now I'm in Floki and I'm telling myself this is the one that I'm going to nail. Uh, I like it. I like the culture. There's a real earnest, funny, humorous culture around crypto, particularly around the memes. Um, I, I made a f- semi-famous meme recently. Uh, uh, it's the the IQ uh, bell curve, and right. I put a I put a helmet on the the low IQ guy and the high IQ guy, right? The Viking helmet. Basically, the low, low IQ guy goes, hmm, Elon puppy, number go up. I love puppies. Um, I like Floki. Then the, the guy in the middle is like, no, you're going to get wrecked. You can't buy You can't buy more meme coins. Oh, no, it's going to go to zero. Then the guy on the right is like, hmm, people like memes. People like dogs. Easy 100x, you know. And that went around and won some really heavy people over because there's this real um, kind of uh, – class there's a crypto classism around these meme coins right where it's like if you're an og you know you just invest in in bitcoin and maybe a few alts and you're looking for fundamentals and blah 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 whereas i i am a story guy and to me memes are stories and memes are entertainment how much how much is uh Netflix worth a, he- a hell of a lot of money, a lot of money. Why is that Netflix worth as much as it is? Well, because our society values entertainment or diversion as much as almost anything else. And so the way I see it, these memes are like pure, um, hot fire, uh, uh, free guerrilla marketing for these projects that then can do other things if they're smart about it. Well, the problem hitherto is that these meme coins kind of don't have anything behind them. So it's just all hype, right? They pump, they dump, you move on to the next one, right? Well, the Floki thing, I know I'm I'm going to sound like a whatever, uh, a cult uh, member, but it really is going to be something different. I believe that the team is like based and they're, they're launching a play to earn game. It's going to be something I think really kind of special. They're also going to be um, TV ads in December. Um and which is, is, I think, a new thing for crypto. So, um, you know, look out for Floki on your on your uh, TV. And I just say to you, like, you know, if you want to learn, I have a, I do have like a little group chat. I'll send you the link. And, um, you know, we just share information. And yeah, I, you know, yeah. Anyway, you know, it's it, not financial advice. Don't ever invest anything you can't lose. That's the trick. That's how you win with crypto. If you mortgage your house, you wake up the next day, uh, you know, and you're down 40%, you're going to capitulate and you're going to be looking for a rope. If you take $2,000 that you don't care about and put it in crypto, you can't lose. There you go. That's my pitch, my crypto pitch. All right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so switch topics to uh, Art of Darkness for a minute. Oh, you don't want to talk about crypto for two hours? <laughs> like I said, it's a pseudo interest. Okay. All right. All right. Um, I made, I, I made yeah. the gesture. Yeah, no, it's fine. I totally want to go into Art of Darkness. I just The final thing I want to say about crypto is like, it's it's so funny. The communities are so funny. And if you get into like a good group chat, you actually, it is taking me back to what it's like to be on the internet 
in like the nineties with like a fun group of people. And there's, there's something there that I don't think is really being talked about enough. And it really is community and online community. Okay. All right. All right. We can move on from crypto. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, art of darkness. Uh, it's been cool. Cause I, uh, I started listening. I was listening to this from episode one. Hey, so rock been, and roll. Uh, yeah. It's been fun to see that develop. And so you've been doing it, uh, well, has it been a year yet or no? Almost a year. Yeah. I think we we started last February, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, is that right? Yeah. And just just wild. And uh, yeah, we I've, I've really enjoyed doing that. It's been it's been a lot of fun. We're going to have Michael Backinson on, who's an actor. He's actually going to be in this upcoming um zoom reading of moderation. You see how all these, how all these things come together? It's all related. Um uh, Backinson is going to come on and we're going to do a, like a, a recap for the year. So we're just going to do an episode where we talk with him about the, what we've done so far. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it sounds like it takes a lot of research. Um, and thankfully you get to do a little bit of swapping duties, division of labor, um, between you and Brad. Um, but having done, you know, as many episodes as you've done, do you have any general reflections on, and also being a playwright and a creative person yourself on uh, the motivations or, you know, what drives creative people at this point? Yeah. Yeah. I really like that question. And I've been thinking about it um, for a minute and it's, it's sort of one of our arching, themes of the show. Uh, we don't, we don't really come out and say it too often, but it's one of the reasons we're doing the show. Brad and I are both artists in our own right. And we, we think there's some value in looking back on the lives of great artists. And, um, you know, I would say we're finding kind of what you would expect, uh, the cliches, right? A lot of childhood trauma, abuse, addiction. We're getting ready to do Disney, Walt Disney, uh, <laughs> we're going to do that with Blauergeist. Uh, so that should, should be fun. Um, yeah. I can't wait for that one. Yeah. Blauer. He's going to be, that's going to be a really good one. I've got my Walt Disney book over here. And so we're seeing all of these things that you would sort of expect about the artist, right? You've got the damaged artist who's trying to, um, have some control over the world, right? People who maybe feel powerless or feel like outsiders, trying to wrestle wrestle control or make their mark. That's that's one thing that's maybe very obvious, but it's really kind of there. There's this like rage at the world, the iniquity of the world, just how it all operates, but then also the social world and trying to like take a crowbar and get leverage any way they can. Um, this is one of the reasons I love theater. Uh, if you're poor as hell, you come from the middle of nowhere, you can write a play and do some theater like right now, no excuses. Um, I think this will this will come back later. But the um, the other thing that I've realized and which has been a big um, eye opener for me or a reminder of something that I already knew is that uh, these people, by and large, do it on their own. They take it into their own hands. They may even have money, right? Like Burroughs came from serious money. Virginia Woolf had money, but Virginia Woolf started her own publishing company with her, with her husband. Um, right. You know, Burroughs did, did these things on his own. He wrote, you know, he wrote and and got things out there. He's maybe not the best example. Um, Zora Neale Hurston, who we just did. Um, Brad did an episode on, episode on her, the whole voodoo connection. I didn't know about it. Fascinating. She moved to New York 
she had this ability to uh, maneuver people to give her what she wanted. So there's this charisma that many of these artists have, which is almost like it's like a kind of a, like a dark charisma, right? Like Kubrick's another example. Kubrick was a D student. Uh, he barely graduated high school, but by the time he, he did, he was already a staff photographer for one of the biggest magazines in the world. So they, these, these characters will often have the ability to talk their way into positions that then allow them to achieve what they, what they want to do. Um, and then finally, you know, with Kubrick, that's a very good example. He's a guy who just made a movie. Uh, was it Fear and Desire? He just, is that the name of the one? It was the first feature. I think film that is I, the first one. I haven't seen yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I think it's streaming on Amazon. It's, it's not a great movie, but he just took his actor friends. They all went out to California, if I'm not mistaken. And he made a feature film. He got it funded, I believe through like a dentist in the neighborhood. I mean, he was a, he's a Jewish kid from the Bronx. Um, and you know, he, he nearly killed his actors <laughs> on the movie, you know, on the movie. He, uh, there was some sort of incident with some gas or something, right? Um, but he made the movie. People saw the movie. And not many years later, he was directing Spartacus. And um, so that, to me, is a reminder. You cannot wait. Don't wait for permission. Do not wait for permission, especially now in this in this age. Um, I mean, look, we're, we have equipment in front of... I have equipment in front of me that would have been the dream of somebody in the mid-'80s to, to have you know, a, a decent microphone, you know, uh, basically effectively a supercomputer. Do uh, you know, you know, who else talks about this is Tim Dillon, uh, you know, and he's very savage about it. You know, he talks about other comedians who are, who just, just are not funny. <laughs> just, just like can't grow an audience. Right. I mean, right. if you're funny, you, so you really, and this is, we've lived in this world for a while. You don't have any excuses anymore. And if you're griping about, ah, da, 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 it's like, Listen, listen to 10 episodes of Art of Darkness if you're griping as an artist and compare your situ- situation to all of these folks. There's going to be somebody in this show who you can relate to and maybe take some notes and, and follow their, their path a little bit. So for me, the, the Kubrick one was a really big episode for me. Um, obviously, Kubrick's amazing, but it was it just reminded me like, man, you got to, you just got to go out and do it. So we're starting our own theater company. I'm going to adapt moderation into a screenplay. We, you know, we're going to figure out how to make a movie, et cetera. Um, and, and we're going to do plays here in St. Paul. We got a name for the theater company. I'm going to announce it here right now. You ready? Ah, let's go. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be called bad mouth theater company. Nice. <laughs> and uh, we're building the website right now. It's not online right now, but it will be online at badmouthtc.com. And we're going to get we're going to get the um, uh, 501c3. You'll be able to donate. It'll be a tax write off. And we're just going to do new plays, uh, contemporary plays in St. Paul, Minnesota. We're going to start with a reading series. Uh, going to be a lot of fun. Awesome. You know, Her- Werner Herzog says something similar. I think he has a story about like stealing camera equipment or something like that and he tells people you know if you have to steal to get a movie made to steal <laughs> yes i yeah. love um uh, herzog and uh he's absolutely one of my heroes without a doubt he's one of my one of my favorite directors no question and um yeah he has the he, he says i think he actually has his film course now but he says the first thing that he would teach in a film course is how to forge documents <laughs> 
right? I, I, he's not wrong. Uh, what are we really doing here? And uh, he's he's a genius. I just I just love Werner Herzog so much. Well, yeah, you know Kubrick's an, an interesting one in the context of Art of Darkness because he actually. He's missing a lot of the cliche things that you um, associate with like the tormented artist. There's no domestic violence. It doesn't sa- I don't know. You know, it doesn't sound like he had like a traumatic childhood. No, um, he actually, they grew up middle-class. They had a house in the Bronx, which was very unusual. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, no, Jewish no guy. addictions really. He's had, had a stable marriage for many, many years. Um, but he does have that like all consuming obsessive thing and the willingness to cross boundaries that I think most normal people would not do in order to create art. Yeah. There was a real, this is one thing about our show that um, I'm kind of proud of. And I I hope we can continue doing is that I, I, the show isn't really about um, psych putting these folks through uh, like a psychological treatment, right? We're not trying to do, that's not the thrust of our show. It comes up naturally though. So yeah, if I had to diagnose Kubrick, I mean, there is a a monomania to him, an obsessiveness um, that comes through in the films. Uh, I had the, I had the fortune of, of seeing a screening of uh, 2001 at uh, the United Palace, in Washington Heights. And this was a few years ago in the before time, right? And that is an incredible cinema. If you're in New York City and you have a chance, look up the United Palace, go take a tour if nothing else. They do screenings of films. And it's this one screen, classic, gilded, gorgeous cinema. Must seat a thousand people, more than a thousand people. I don't even know how many it seats. Incredible. The way they used to go see movies, right? And I saw a bunch of films there. And 2001 was the last film they screened like in the in the 60s or the 70s or whatever it was um, before the space closed down and turned into like a some sort of charismatic pastor took it over. And it's being it's been restored and everything. I think Lin-Manuel donated a bunch of money to it. So good. Good for him. Um, And uh, but we saw 2001 and we saw it with one of the actors um, who played one of the astronauts. I think it was Bowman. I can't, I, I should be able to remember, um, uh, one of the astronauts and he got up on stage. He delivered a speech that he still remembered all those years later, 40 or 50 years later, um, which had been cut from the movie, but he delivered it, which is fantastic. And he talked about, and this will be an interesting little uh, nugget for people who want to rewatch 2001. He talked about Kubrick's attention to detail, which of course everybody knows, but there's the sequence in 2001 where, and I might've mentioned this on the Art of Darkness episode. There's the sequence in 2001 where uh, they are at the way station between the earth and the moon, I believe. It's the way station in space, right? And it's, he, he makes the phone call to his daughter, um, here. And then he meets with some other dignitaries, um, and, uh, you know, some whatever, and they're talking and there's one shot where there's like a sweater, might be like a red sweater or a blue sweater hanging over the, the side of one of the chairs. Then there's another shot from another angle. The sweater is missing. It's a continuity error. If you listen closely though, Kubrick laid in after the effect, he caught his own continuity error he laid over a voiceover that says something to the effect of 
if if someone is looking for a missing shawl or a missing sweater, please da da da. That <laughs> that level of obsessiveness in editing, um, I just yeah. think I just think that's amazing. That's amazing. It is amazing. I mean, it kind of lends um, credence to the idea that in The Shining, like you will see uh, continuity er- continuity errors, like the chair that goes missing on purpose. Knowing it has to be on purpose because knowing how he usually does his films and how he's done that before. It's just not likely that it would be an accident. I love room two, three, seven. I love that documentary. Oh, the shining. There's going to be a screening of that here next week. I, ah, man, I might have to go. (laughs) There's like some classic cinema with like a Wurlitzer organ and the whole thing over here. I I don't know. I might have to go. Okay. So Uh, that's, uh, this is kind of a good transition uh, because, uh, well, we're near Halloween. So I'm probably going to put this episode out a little bit before that. Um, so do you, uh, movies I'm guessing are probably a big part of your Halloween tradition, right? Yeah, for sure. We have been watching all of the, uh, classic kind of slasher movies. Uh, I think we've yet to screen Halloween. We watched the new one, not the new, new one, but the, the one prior, um, all the Friday, the 13th movies, all the way through to Jason X, which I think is amazing. Um, uh, then, uh, yeah, we did uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, and then and I don't normally do these either. It's sort of sort of wild. I don't normally um, <laughs> do this, but for whatever reason, my uh, my lady and I we've been going back over them. And then Hellraiser, I started watching those. Um, God, Hellraiser is just it's like a it's like the quintessence of the eighties. It's just shot yes. in your living room, like you can feel the cocaine that was being you know, taken <laughs> when that movie was made, like, especially the second one, my God, it's just like this vision. Um, and I, yeah, I've, I've come around to appreciate those movies. I mean, they, they scared me stiff when I was a kid. I mean, I, there were whole nights I couldn't sleep because of Friday the 13th. Um, so it's sort of fun to watch them now and to realize kind of how campy and goofy they are. Cause it's like, Oh, okay. I see. I, I, you know, I see what's going on here. Yeah. The slasher genre is something that like, it can very it can go campy very quickly. The first Halloween movie is like really great, you know, in terms of its its mood. Like the whole movie is just like, yeah, it's just a great unnerving kind of mood. And it's not like necessarily it's not really that gory either. Like it's it's definitely violent, but um I think it's probably the gore aspect that can like make it that genre go overboard very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I like the, you were talking about mood. That's what, that's one of the things I like about putting those movies on. It's just, you don't have to watch them frame by frame. You're not looking for any sort of deep meaning. Uh, it's just there. Uh, the, the funniest thing that happened with Friday the 13th recently is, you know, again, I was watching it with my, with my lady and um, we have a baby son. And at some point during the Friday the 13th series, she was like, kind of like sympathizing with Jason, like how sad it was that he drowned and how she sort of understands. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, oh, wow. We're what? I mean, I'd never thought about that, but there is, there is like a pathos at the heart of uh, Friday the 13th that kind of works in a funny kind of puritanical way. Right. Like these, these kids shouldn't have been smoking grass and, and uh, screwing around. They, they should have been watching this poor kid who drowned. Like maybe Kevin Bacon deserves to get stabbed to death. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, I did make a tweet where I was like, I'm at the age now because I'm like almost 40. I'm at the age now where there is a part of me that goes, yeah, these, these kids deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very, very funny and strange. But yeah, no, they're, and they're funny. The, the movies are funny. They're, the other thing about them is that they are, and I think I got at this with, with Hellraiser, they are time capsules for that time. There's just the zeitgeist of, those ta- of, of, of that period. You can watch the Friday the 13th movies from the first one through, um, you know, forget about Jason X or whatever, but through to sort of Jason takes Manhattan. And it's like this little time machine that takes you through the eighties. Um, the first one feels like a movie from the seventies and it's just a different period. And then you can watch the eighties sort of happen, um, with the hair and the costumes. It's just, it's just a funny, interesting kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think this year, uh, so my wife is about, uh, she's like three months pregnant and uh, she, she's unwilling to go uh, to, to watch anything right now. That's like too scary or disturbing, uh-huh. you know, don't want, no, don't want any bad vibes. <laughs> so this year we're going to have to go back a little bit further back in time, I think, and watch the classic monster movies because hmm. they're less scary. They're more about this like high Gothic mood or, you know, that kind of atmosphere stuff. So. Hmm. I watched Dracula and Frankenstein. Oh yeah. Oh, fantastic. All that stuff is great. You can also, you know, there's always Hitchcock too. You can watch psycho. Yeah. 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 Classic. Love that stuff. Do you have a favorite? Um, I'm looking at it right now. I jaws jaws. Although jaws isn't really a, I've got jaws memories from Martha's vineyard, Matt Taylor. I I picked this up at the library because they've got all my Disney, um, uh, Art of Darkness uh, books in front of me. Um, Disney's an example of somebody who really wanted to create an alternate world. <laughs> that was his whole MO. Um, yeah, no, Jaws. I mean, Jaws just has to be my my all-time favorite, um, as I guess midwit as that sounds. But I think, like, I don't know. I can watch that movie a thousand times. Not really a Halloween movie, though. Um, no. but yeah. So what is it about Jaws that uh, really strikes <laughs> I mean, what what isn't to love about Jaws? It just it's the perfect film. It's perfectly edited. It has enough uh, cinema in it, sort of cinematic uh, moments that you if you want to appreciate it that way, you can like as a cinephile, the 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 wipe cuts where where Brody um, is at the beach watching for the shark and and it wipes and it's closer and it wipes and it's closer. Um, the sensation that that provokes of like, it's almost like the shark is thrusting through the water. Um, the, the way that, that Brody is doubled with the shark, like Brody is the shark. The shark is Brody. You are the shark in the movie. The, the, you know, the idea of the genius of, of having the camera become the shark, um, the metaphor, all of the, the sort of resonances that that creates, right? Um, the the performances. I mean, it's so theatrical. I, I, you know, the, in the when they're in the or the bottom of the orca, farewell and adieu. All of that. The the speech which uh, which John Milius wrote. Are you familiar with that? With the, the the great Indianapolis speech. You know it, but do you know the story of how that was written? I think I've heard something about this, but go go ahead. And yeah, talk. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, so uh, the the film had gone way over budget. Bruce the shark, um, which is why in Finding Nemo, the shark's name is Bruce. Um, 
Bruce the shark, the mechanical shark, was fritzing out um, on on set. They got it on set. They it wouldn't work, so they had to do all these innovative, um, creative workarounds. Um, that's the other thing. Like half of this movie takes place on the water, and this is pre digital. I mean, when you think about the um, the orchestration of that and the risk of that and how intense that 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 must have been. It's just a, a marvel that it was ever made. Um, no, it's like the first movie to really do that, right? To film so much on the water. I, I think so. The first feature like this um, to really do it. Um, I mean, and he was 27 years old, Spielberg. Uh, incredible. I mean, and the woman, I believe, won an Oscar for editing. Um, I should know her name. Uh, but she she won. I mean, because that editing job was incredible. Um, but uh, oh, what were we talking? Oh, the Indianapolis. So so the screenwriter they had on contract was no longer on contract. He knew he needed something there, which just genius, right? Real storytelling genius. Uh, I need something here. He called John Milius, the great John Milius, um, Red Dawn, Conan the Barbarian, wrote a little script called Apocalypse Now. Um, the real life Walter from The Big Lebowski. <laughs> you know, I think I had heard that, but that had never registered for me. But that's very funny. Shober Shamas. <laughs> um, uh, boy, that's another. You talk about the Coens here in Minnesota. Um, you want to talk about heroes. Um, the... Uh, um, he called Milius and Milius dictated this speech to him one night. And it was like a 10 page speech. And then Spielberg and Shaw worked it down to one of the top, top three, you know, Hollywood film or, you know, speeches of all time. Um, it's probably my favorite. Um, yeah. Just incredible. Anyway, we delivered the bomb. I just, uh, I mean, it has everything in it. And, uh, but then it has, it has enough that if you're, feeling like a low IQ and you just want to watch a good movie. It's all there. I mean, it's, it's got the white picket fences in the, in the front of the movie. It's got the, when they're racing down the beach uh, you know, you have the sort of whatever the, the little fencing there that's all broken and it sort of suggests, suggests teeth. Um, there's just so many little details in that movie. And then the palette, the use of red, uh, the use of yellow. I mean, it's just, it's a really a fine art film hiding as a, um, sort of the first summer blockbuster i freaking love jaws man <laughs> right hey i got hey i got a movie here's a movie pitch for you all right jaws but it's killdozer <laughs> in in space yeah. <laughs> well that's how that you know that's how they pitched um alien right oh jaws uh, in space that's how they pitched it perfect yeah that's, that makes sense so yeah, it's kind of like the archetypal you know thriller in a way. Oh, I mean, Alien is a, an incredible film. Incredible. Yeah, that's another one that's just, I mean, that would be, yeah, I probably need to rewatch that. Um, again, doesn't really feel like a Halloween film for some reason, but uh, but just uh, an incredible movie. Yeah, it's got that, it's got that tension, though, to it mm. that Jaws also has. Yeah, it really does. I mean, but it also understands the idea that Jaws um, hints at that we are the monster. The audience is the monster in Jaws, really. Because as soon as a shark shark dies, the movie's over. It's like a really quick denouement and we're done. And the right. audience is made to understand that. And the audience's desire to see death and to see violence is interrogated in the movie Jaws in a really subtle way. It's there. But we... We do show up for these voyeuristic acts of violence. Um, 
it, it, it gets people out. If it bleeds, it leads. Right. And, um, yeah, ah, I could, <laughs> man, I love that movie. I mean, when I was a kid too, I just, just, oh my God, just, just Brody and the heroism of the, of the, the men and the, ah, just wonderful. Such so if they were to do a, a Jaws on stage, would you want to be, <laughs> would you play Brody, Hooper oh, man. or Quint? Oh, damn. Oh man. That's a, that's a fun question. <laughs> Man, I don't know. I think uh, I think I I probably would be cast as a Brody if somebody cast me as something. Um, although I think it would be the most fun to play Quint. Yeah, uh, I think everybody's going to want to choose scenery uh, as yeah. Quint. <laughs> I mean, you know, honestly, I think I'd probably be the shark. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. Well, like you said, Brody is paired with the shark. So yeah, yeah, Brody is the shark. I mean, then of course those movies degrade and become completely schizophrenic by the end. You know where where they literally have this weird psychic connection. Connection. It's you know it doesn't work uh, by the time you get to Jaws: The Revenge because it's just completely crazy. Again, I think the, the cocaine has taken hold at that point. Oh yeah, um, I never saw any of the sequels. Oh my gosh. Well, two is all right. Three is funny because it's the 3D Jaws, right? It was during that 3D uh, wave. And they did the same thing with Jason 3, if I'm not mistaken, um, with uh, Friday the 13th. Right, right. yeah. Um, where you just go, wow, this is just, whoa, what happened here? Um, and then Jaws the Revenge is just famously horrible. Uh, the shark follows um, uh, Ellen Brody down to the Caribbean. <laughs> like she has this spooky psychic link with the shark and it's, but it's so on the nose that it just becomes like corny. Um, I can never, uh, Michael Caine, Michael Caine was asked, asked about Jaws, the revenge. Um, and he said very famously, he said that he had never seen it, but he enjoys the house it bought him. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Sounds about Jaws right. lore. Yeah. Nice. Mm. Oh, so I have uh, I got one more question about Art of Darkness to go back to that for a moment. You know, you uh, one of the lines on on the show is that uh, all of the the subjects are uh, safely dead, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was wondering though, is there anybody that uh, you're just going like, as soon as they go, uh, we're we're doing an episode on this person? I have thought about this, and I have an answer for you. Um, I haven't spoken with Brad about this and Brad's my, he's my podcast wife. Right. So I have to, I have to run this by Brad, but I'm pretty sure that he would, uh, he's my co-host. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think he would approve as soon as Doug Stanhope dies, we're going to do a Doug Stanhope episode. Oh yeah. That's a good one. Our rule is that we wait a year and a day and that is for spiritual reasons. It's to let the spirit settle. And it's also to not feel like ambulance chasers. Right. Gross. We don't want to chase clout when somebody's just died. It's really, I think it's tacky. Um, and then also you want the dust to settle a little bit. It's very fresh. These folks have families. I mean, it's, you know, I felt even a little sensitive about Sarah Kane here recently. You know, you do Oscar Wilde and it's kind of far enough away. But with Sarah Kane, her family's still alive and she killed herself. And there's, you want to have some sensitivity. However, Doug Stanhope has his own celebrity death pool. <laughs> Famously, right? It's Doug Stanhope. They they do like gambling or like a funny game, you know, about dead celebrities. So I think Doug, I think Doug, we can do the very next day. Yeah, that, that's a good answer. <laughs> you know, what's funny is I'm seeing him, uh, I'm seeing him in four days. He's going to be uh, 
at the Mall of America here doing some comedy. So I'm going to go see Doug. Um, I love that dude. Yeah, I got to see him uh, in Philly the night that the Louis C.K. stuff came down and happened. (laughs) So he led with some conversations about that. It was nice. Pretty funny. Yeah, he's a great comedian and a, and a really, really cool dude. I really admire Doug. I like stand-up comedy, but I've never really uh, gone out of my way much to see any live. I probably should have. Um, and now there's like not as not as much of it. And like a lot of the people that I would have wanted to see are not performing or they or would be difficult to see. I did get to see Dave Chappelle once. That was cool. Oh, nice. Where'd you see him? Um, it was at the... Um, Marriott uh, basketball arena oh. uh, by oh. the university of Utah here. Cool. Yeah. What year? Back, back when I was a student. So it would have been mid aughts. I don't remember exactly what oh, year. Man. Nice. That's yeah. a real, that's a good one. That's so great. after, after he was done with Chappelle's show and Got I think it. it was actually like, you know, after he like went off to Africa or, or whatever for a while and was done with Chappelle's show, I think this was like the first time he was back doing uh, shows. I got to see him. Yeah, that's awesome. No, he's uh, he's great. I have not seen him live. I would like to see him live. My ultimate comedy story right now is I was in Manhattan. Uh, this is with an ex-girlfriend of mine. This is actually kind of the night we broke up, which is funny. Um, uh, hope she's doing well. Uh, <laughs> but we went to see a comedy night on the Upper West Side in this little comedy club that's underneath like a Mexican restaurant. Um, it's the West Side Comedy Club. And it was like a ladies' night for comedy. So it was Chrissy Meyer and a bunch of women on the on the um, uh, whatever on the bill. And Chrissy Meyer is great. She's really funny. Uh, you should follow her. And I had seen her tweeting with Doug, and that she had something going on. So I was like, oh, she's you know Stanhope. Okay, she can't. You know, I'll go out and see her. So we get there. We're in the the basement. You know, we're in this club, ten feet away from the stage, and there's this guy in the back with like a Fu Manchu mustache and a bald head and it's dark. And I look back and I'm like, is that Bill Burr? Nah, can't, why well, can't be Bill Burr. So the first acts come up and a few, few acts go by. And then Chrissy Meyer says, and now we've got a very special guest, Bill Burr. <laughs> this is like two years ago. And uh, Bill Burr comes up and I'm sitting opposite this other couple. And the guy from the other couple, like looks at me like, what the, you know, this is the guy, Bill Burr sells out Madison Square Garden for like two or three nights. Like, you know, we're seeing him at a tiny club on the Upper West Side. And he proceeded to to go into some new material and, and uh, that he's working on. A couple of women got really offended. <laughs> <laughs> he, he stood him up and walked him. Um, he walked him. And uh, my my uh, my then girlfriend was didn't really appreciate it either. <laughs> <laughs> so later that night we both just kind of went okay so bill burr kind of helped me uh help me break up um i wouldn't be here right now if it weren't for for bill burr so so thanks bill but it was really funny i mean it was like i was like 10 feet away from him he was making eye contact at one point i was like oh man this is uh, uh, bill burr is great great comedian yeah you should go out and see comedy it's worth it you gotta you gotta support um you know support people so let's uh let's move on to the lightning round I'm going to throw some names at you and you give me a, give me your take real quick. Um, I try to pick names that I'm pretty sure that the guest will have something to say about, but uh, you're always free to pass. So, okay. All right. All right. Elon Musk. Uh, To the moon, Floki, please post more pictures of the puppy. (laughs) 
that's all I have to say about Elon. All right, Mark Zuckerberg. Oh no. You remember the you remember the ex I mentioned? She went to the same private boarding school that that lizard went to. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, he's responsible for for so many bad things on the internet. Basically, he's a he's a glowy, he's a spook. Um, you know, uh, Silicon Valley is is a uh, FedGov West. Uh, so this whole narrative that he's some plucky entrepreneur, you know, uh, the social network, a very fine film, but it still obscures the the reality of what these systems are. Uh, yeah. So what's going on with Facebook right now? They're like changing the name or revamping it uh, or something like I, that? I don't know. I mean, they've taken a brand and made it so toxic that they're going to rename it, apparently. Uh, it doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, right. Have you been out to that campus? Have you seen that campus? No. Just Bugman Central. I mean, I had a buddy, uh, one of the smartest uh, people I know, who's a good friend of mine. He ended up working there for a while, and so I got to see the campus. I mean, it's just it's just an, an abortion. I mean, it just this is not how companies should be run. This is not how the world should work, and they're trying to turn the world into this permanent school. That's what they want. They're these private school kids, you know, uh, you know, um, uh, who who've been handed everything, who lie to us about starting their company in their garages and all this garbage, um, who, uh, you know, instead of um, vibrantly integrating with a community, they they create their own little mini utopias as they help drive the drive the world into the ground. That's I, I'm really I don't have a lot of love lost for 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 companies like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Henrik Ibsen. Oh, uh, great playwright. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I, I, not my favorite, but when I think about it, Ibsen wrote ghosts, correct? I believe he uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Not my, not my favorite, but enough to like, no. Yeah. Yeah. A doll's house. I mean, I've seen some incredible productions of a doll's house. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I'm, one, I'm, one actually of the only, I'm only moderately familiar with him. I want to read, uh, read more or see more, um, largely because, uh, cause right now I'm, I'm getting back into James Joyce. And yeah. he was actually a pretty strong influence on Joyce. So, uh, you know, I hadn't realized that connection. Yeah. He's super important. He's not my, in my pantheon. Like I would, I know more about Chekhov than I do Ibsen, but Ibsen is somebody I'm going to have, we're going to have to do an art of darkness on, on Ibsen. Really important playwright. I mean, Pier Gint, A Doll's House, Hedda Gabler. These are, these are really, really major plays. Um, so yeah, yeah, we'll do an art of darkness. We're getting ready to do Joyce. Yeah. That's exciting. Um, so how about Chekhov then? Mm. Just you can't um, say enough about how important Chekhov is and how great those plays are. The Seagull, the the Cherry Orchard, uh, those two in particular are just, to me, just incredible. Some of the best productions I've seen have been of um, uh, those plays. And um, he also influenced the short story. Very few writers can have that much outside uh, outsized influence on on one thing, much less, much less two. So, um, yeah, if you, if they're doing a Chekhov play, um, you know, go see it. There are a few things I don't like about how Chekhov is sort of handled, particularly in America, because, um, Americans, for whatever reason, they tend to make Chekhov too serious. Like they miss the comedy. They're very, very funny plays. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think I think that the other thing I don't I really don't like is that when a playwright becomes like the critical darling uh, for a minute, right? They have a big play at Playwrights Horizons, or they they become a you know they get nominated for the Pulitzer or whatever their finalist. What'll happen is they'll as part of their victory lap, they're given like a juicy commission to adapt Chekhov. Stop doing that. 
<laughs> I hate that. It's uh, it's just like, oh my God, it's uh, it's just the worst. And it's these regional theaters are basically trying to give hot new playwrights some work because their audiences will come out to see Chekhov because it's it's the thing you do. It's like, no, let's no commission new plays. Okay. <laughs> That's right. a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> Samuel Beckett. Uh, one of the greats. I was on a, a podcast called Beckett's Babies, um, which if you're interested in plays and playwriting, they do a, a really fine job interviewing playwrights. And um, uh, so, yeah, Beckett, incredible. You're talking about Joyce, right? Waiting for Godot. Um, impossible to overstate um, his influence. Also kind of a surprisingly um, interesting thing with his estate. Like they're very, very um, uh, intense about uh, how his plays are performed. You can look that up. Um, mm. They're intense about casting. If I'm not mistaken, like they will shut down productions of Godot where women are cast, for example. So there's a, some very interesting history there. Like his, he has a very particular vision for these plays. Um, but oh, that's uh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. 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 I mean, you Big can tell, but yeah. Yeah. Happy days, all these plays. I mean, and you, without, without Beckett, you don't get Sarah Kane. You don't get, you don't get any of us. I mean, it's just the way it is. It's like how, how modern plays are written, you know, without, without Chekhov, without Beckett, it just doesn't, the modern theater that I think is cool <laughs> and worth doing um, doesn't exist. Yeah. We were talking earlier about how, uh, you know, a lot of things that happen in more like experimental theater, people would probably be surprised to hear about because they have a certain idea of what what a play is and what happens on stage you describe beckett's plays to people and it's like yeah there's these like heads in urns or people in trash cans or stuff like that yeah yeah he's, he's trying to describe uh modern existential despair in light of world war ii uh among other things and um yeah, yeah, we need to go see those plays. I mean, if you're in a town of any size and there's a theater company that's doing Beckett or Chekhov or Sarah Kane, much less, go to those places. Those are the theaters you should be supporting because um, they're, they're in a tradition that has a real, um, has a lot to say about our current situation. Um, yeah, yeah, that's all I'll say about that. Garrison Keillor. <laughs> No, no. Oh my God, man. <laughs> I should pass, but I'm not going to. I, I've got to take this and separate this from Garrison Keillor, the man who I don't know personally, uh, and who was obviously canceled during the Me Too wave um, for something that sounded pretty um, benign. I, the Midwest that I grew up in um, is the Midwest of... Uh, kind of, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of roughness. There's a lot of addiction and abuse and, um, poverty and, uh, racism. There's just all that stuff is here. And Garrison Keillor's vision of like small town Midwestern life to me is just co a complete fraud. And so I understand people put on a Prairie Home Companion and it's warm and cozy and it reminds them of their childhood and NPR and blah, blah, blah. But to me, it's always just been just, just poison. I just, I just find it to be just a complete lie. Uh, <laughs> not to be too pointed about yeah, it. Yeah, no, I, it's, I, I could never get into it myself, but I was curious I, of what you. I, but I'm, but I'm also a, I also am a staunch defender of Minnesotan cultural products because 
I'm a Minnesotan now, you know, and it's like, so I, I respect and appreciate the people who appreciate that and who dig that. It's also in a theatrical, theatrical tradition, this kind of old timey song and dance, you know, I appreciate all of that and what it is. Um, but it doesn't, it's never, it's never spoken to me. I think because of certain class things, it's a little too, too, it's like a bourgeois fantasia. It's like a liberal fantasia. Um, and it really doesn't reflect the reality of what life is like out here. Do you have anybody that you would suggest that uh, does capture the the reality of it? Any um, books, movies, anything like that? Well, Tim O'Brien, uh, uh, the things they carried. Okay. Listen to that. He, I mean, he would read that. He's from Minnesota. Um you know, I've written a few things. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think right. about somebody who, you know, who really captures the dark, the darkness of the Midwest. Maybe Dennis Johnson. Um, you can go lots of places that are that are really gonna. Is it, is it Dennis Johnson? Yeah. Um, you know, read read Tree of Smoke, um, which is another Vietnam thing. Um, I just yeah. recently read um, Stoner by John Williams. Okay, and that takes place in Missouri, so it's like yeah, more south, but it's Midwest, and that to me felt had like a, and I, I don't remember if he was himself from Missouri, but it did, it really to me seemed to capture um, kind of a certain inwardness that exists in that area, uh, in in the character of of Stoner. You've got to read. Um, this is, I mean, read Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald. I mean, yeah. people people get Gatsby so wrong. Um, I can't even uh, begin. I'm just going to say um, before I get back to that, because I think it's important to come back around to, to, to Fitz. Um, read uh, Mary Miller, my friend Mary Miller, uh, okay. who uh, I need to reach out to. I haven't, I haven't spoken with her in a while, but we went to grad school together. She's had a lot of success and she she actually uh, bucked the the sort of lie that you can't have a lot of success with short stories. She made herself famous writing short stories. Now she's a Southern writer. So she's, she's really identified with Mississippi, but she nails this. Um, oh, I don't want to use the phrase white trash, but there's a <laughs> lower, lower class, working class, white experience, um, uh, which is not, not necessarily all that funny. You talk about, Beckettian writers. She has a, there's a Beckettian quality to her writing. That's really wonderful. Her collection collections of short stories are, are quite a big deal. She's been translated. They love her in Europe. She's brilliant. Um, Bukowski. I mean, read, read Bukowski again, not necessarily a Midwestern thing, but you know, and people get, people get, um, uh, Gatsby so wrong because they don't know North Dakota and they don't know Minnesota. That that is a story. That's that 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 book is not about the Northeast. That book is about Midwesterners in the Northeast. And people don't know. You ask them, well, what where is Gatsby from? They don't know. They can't tell you. And um, he's from North Dakota. His name's Jay Gatz with a Z, like my Kautz. You know, he's like he's a German. He, he and he is a um, he's an ultimate like striver. He grew up in like a sod house in the Dakotas, and then he ends up out in out in the Northeast. Yeah. Um, there's a, in the book, I mean, there's a certain suspicion against him uh, because of, of that, of the, the German ancestry. And that has to do with the, you know, world war one and stuff like yeah. that. And that time period, I, I had not connected it to, uh, to the Midwestern origin, but that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, so that's a, that was a great book. There's another really excellent um, 
I mean, if you can't tell, uh, you know, I identify with Jay Gatsby a great deal. Um, the, uh, there's a great short story, um, called winter dreams from Fitzgerald. Uh, it's a short story about a caddy here in, in St. Paul and, uh, a woman from the work or from the, from the, uh, from the bourgeois, from, from money, uh, who he desired, but couldn't have because of the class difference, um, and then years later, it's about how he goes off and makes his fortune, then comes back and he learns about what's happened to her. Just a beautiful story um, about class um, in America. Yeah. How about the Coen brothers? <laughs> I love the Coen brothers. I There's a restaurant that we go to here called Keys, which is a great local, uh, it's a chain, but it's local. They have like three or four locations um, and they just make the best American diner food, like straight ahead American diner food. Um, when I was living in New York, I would come back here regularly and, um, you know, to see my family and things. And um, I would always get, I'd land, come here, come to Keys, and I would get the turkey dinner. And they do like a Thanksgiving style turkey dinner. You know, I don't know if it's 365 days a year, but Every day they're open, you can get like a turkey dinner, turkey stuffing, cranberry. <laughs> it's just the best. It's like Make 14. Hungry. Oh, dude, it's so good. It's 14 bucks. This does relate to the Coens because if you watch A Serious Man, uh, the Coens remodeled the keys that we go to here in Roseville, where my daughter was born. She wasn't born in the keys, but she was born in Roseville. Um, uh, they remodeled it for the scenes where um, the man is talking kind of about cuck cuckolding him, like with his wife, like mm -hmm. that, that whole horrible story arc. Those happen in that cafe. Um, yeah, the key, uh, the uh, the Coen brothers, of course, have a strong Minnesota connection, right? They, their father taught at the U, taught math at the U. They're some of my heroes. I mean, and I think it's, is it Ethan? Ethan uh, has written plays and has had plays staged and everything. I mean, they're, if you want to understand the connection between theater and cinema and how they really are one grand tradition. The Coens do a really good job of kind of showing you that um, in their work. Uh, some, some of their, their work is more theatrical than others, but um, uh, Oh God, the name of what, what's the name of the early uh, one of the early Coen brothers movies where it's a playwright. The playwright is in Hollywood. Um, Martin Fink. Yeah, Barton Fink, right. That's not my favorite one of theirs, but yeah, it's right there. I mean, there's a playwright as a character. So yeah, they're yeah, great. That, you, that actually is one of my favorites. It's one of my favorite movies. I mean, there's so much about, uh, you talk about Art of Darkness. I mean, it gets a little like surreal and fantastical about what happens, but it's an excellent portrait of, uh, you know, the being a writer, you know, and a creative person and that the struggles of that. And in an industry too, well, maybe that's why it, that never struck me. Maybe it hits a little too close to home. I might need to rewatch that one. That that one I have not seen obsessively, like I've seen uh, Lebowski or Fargo or right. um, No Country for Old Men or uh, um, Oh Brother Where Art Thou. What an incredible movie Oh Brother Where Art Thou is. I mean that movie that movie made more money from the soundtrack than than the movie itself. I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're just, you can't overstate how great they are. Um, you, you aspire to that. And I, I do write screenplays um, with my, with my writing partner and we've written a few that, I, you know, I wouldn't say they're Cohen-esque per se, but there's definitely a, um, an inspiration there from them. They're great. Cool. Um, Euripides. 
oh, I adapted a play that was uh, itself an adapt adaptation of Iphigenia, which is um, a play from Euripides. Uh, and there's a fellow named Charles Mee who does these kind of pomo uh, pastiche plays, collage plays, where he'll pull from popular culture, or he'll pull from media, uh, and he'll mash these plays together to create these very cool kind of um, cultural, uh, like, I guess, plays, right? Um, and uh, Red Eye Theater here in town commissioned me, it was the first commission I ever received, um, to uh, to adapt uh, a Charles Mee play. So I adapted um, Iphigenia 2.0. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, Euripides was kind of a bad boy of the theater at the time, if I'm not mistaken. He was a bit of a an edge case. Um, I don't know too much more about him. It's been a while since I looked at it, but yeah, he's he's worth reading. He's I think the people they sort of say he's maybe the most he had the most modern sensibility of all those those older those ancient Greek writers. Yeah, I think that's right. And he was very popular. And so I think because of those things, there's kind of a tradition of like snobs dunking on Euripides going <laughs> all the way back to his contemporaries, too, because I was reading Aristophanes' Frogs for my Frogs series, obviously. Oh, yeah. Great. And, uh, you know, the story is about Dionysus, the god, going into hell to retrieve the soul of Euripides. And uh, what he winds up doing is staging a contest between Aeschylus and Euripides on who's the better poet. And so the whole ending is like a joke on Euripides and he ends up like taking uh, uh, Aeschylus back because he was like, you know, Aeschylus is like the, the, I don't know what an analog in film would be, but like the first grand master of the theater, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. And then, Orson, yeah. Orson Welles or something. Yeah, Nietzsche has a lot of bad things to say about Euripides too. But uh, <laughs> the Bacchae is an amazing play. Yeah, I, I Sorry, don't know. No, no, no. Yeah, the Bacchae. Yeah, the Bacchae. Yeah. I don't know him that well, but yeah, that, that stuff is fa fascinating. And, then, and in the contemporary theater, there these trends kind of come and go, um, where for a decade, uh, folktale adaptations were kind of a big deal, or like the Greek adaptations. Um, kind of reached a, a high point in the aughts um, with, uh, there's a great play from Sarah Rule, the name of which escapes me right now. Let me, uh, I want to get it right. Yeah, she's a wonderful playwright and she had a, uh, oh, what is it? Um, Eurydice, she adapted Eurydice and it was just an incredible um, adaptation of that of that story. Um, I did an adaptation, which is yet to be produced, and I hope one day it will be. Maybe we'll do it here, but um, I adapted the uh, the Vasilisa story. Um, so it's, uh, are you familiar with the Vasilisa folktale? I'm not. Uh, it's really interesting. The, the, the simplest way to describe it is it's, it's like Cinderella meets Pinocchio meets Prometheus. Those are the three sort of arcs with the Baba Yaga as the oh, wow. kind of villain. It's fascinating. Uh, yeah, I adapted that. Um, so maybe one day we'll do it. Nice. <laughs> All right. Well, let's do the final question. Okay. Uh, could you please white pill me on the state of future of art today? Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. Oh, boy. Hmm. <laughs> Look, I, I think this is where it comes back to those threads that we've woven around the DIY quality of this stuff. And we can tie Jaws into this, right? If if Spielberg had felt stuck on the set of Jaws 
and had frozen up and panicked because the mechanical shark wasn't working, we never would have had that film. Literally, history would have been changed because that film would not have been made the way that it was made. So you adapt. Um, we're making a podcast right now with with equipment that I think most normies could get their hands on. There's not nothing like too special going on here, right? Um, aside from the extraordinary talent on the show, of course. Um, yeah, right now. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, of course. Um, but it, it is in your hands. It's in your hands. And these systems that des- are designed to kind of screw us over, they still have um, uh, Achilles heels. They still have little 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 crevices that you can get into and kind of hack your way in and through. Um, that Tim Dillon point about like, look, if you're funny, you got a phone. You can find an audience. Be funny. Be funnier. Get better, get better at what you do. Make stuff. Finish stuff. Move on. Move on to the next thing. Make stuff, finish stuff, no excuses. Um, it is, the power is in our hands. I mean, if you're a filmmaker, you talk about um, Werner Herzog, right? He had to steal his cameras. I think it was from the a film school in Munich. Um, he stole his first camera. Um, you know, it's just, it's just do it. Do it and get it done. Kubrick, right? Went out to California, you know, got some money, went out to California, nearly killed his actors, but he did it. <laughs> he, he, he got it done. So don't, what I would say the white pill is don't wait for permission to do things. Uh, take it into your own hands, make stuff, make a podcast, uh, get a good idea, do it. And, um, and also like there's more information at our fingertips than ever before. I mean, I grew up in the eighties and I remember the first few times I remember, do you remember this? Um, before the internet, they would have these encyclopedia CDs where everything was hyperlinked through these CDs. Yeah, you'd, cl- you'd click a link and you'd have to switch to a second CD because yeah. the link was on the second CD. And Carta, I, I believe that was called. Yes, my- and you probably used a, like a HTML. Probably, um, I don't know what it was, but the it was like it was like that. It was all hyperlinked, but it was on like twelve CDs. I was hungry enough as a kid to put that CD in. So if you can remember that experience as a kid, you have that times I mean, exponentially. There's no you know, a thousand X access to that information. So information isn't our problem. Um, you know, the tools of production are not our problem. Our problem is more in terms of the arts and the culture is more spiritual, I would say. And if you're if you're waiting for these gatekeepers, for these woke gatekeepers to give you permission to do stuff, you're going to wait forever. Um and uh, yeah, so I'm white pilled on that, right? Like we're doing this fun podcast, Art of Darkness, that's starting to get some traction. I've got moderation. We're adapting. We're doing it online. Um, you know, and if you're young and you're just coming out right now, you've got your own animal to wrestle with. You have your own media to sort of deal with. I would I would encourage younger people to step away from the shorter form stuff because <laughs> the good stuff really lives with this, you know, with the two hour podcast, with the 90 minute movie, with the, do you know what I mean? So yeah. I'm a bit of a boomer when it comes to this stuff, but like, um, and then I would just final, finally say like the frontier now is for us to reclaim IRL spaces. We got to, this COVID garbage, they're trying to lock us down. They're trying to screen, they're trying to capture us in these screens. We've got to step away and reclaim IRL experiences. And I guarantee there's an audience out there waiting for that, starving for that, because our humanity lives in three dimensions. It doesn't live on these, you know, black mirrors of the phones and the, and the screens. 
Yeah. Well, that, that's a great answer. Um, so we can leave it there. Is there anything else uh, that you want to say before we call it a day? Uh, no, I'm just great. And I, I, I find your podcast to be fascinating. I appreciate what you're doing. I'm, I've always been very interested in symbolism and the occult and, and all of it and storytelling. So I really appreciate what you do. It's very cool. Um, well, thanks. Yeah, man, I really dig it. So uh, and hopefully we can have you on to do an Art of Darkness episode. Um, yep. Plan, you know, planning on it. Okay. All right. Dynamite. Yeah. And I would just give my plugs um, at the end. Artofdarkpod.com. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Uh, I'm at Kevin Kautzman. It's just my name. Moderationplay.com. And, uh, you know, uh, bye Floki. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Kevin Kautzman, thank you for talking to me today. All right, man.